Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Take Me Out to the Ballot Box edition. My name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm the Journal's assignment editor, and I am here in the newsroom studio on Friday, May 1st, for our last podcast before Albertans vote next Tuesday in the province's general election. With me in the home stretch of this campaign, our provincial affairs reporter, Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. And provincial affairs columnist, Graham Thompson. Hi, Sarah. The always opinionated city columnist, Paula Simons, will be joining us some shortly. She's just working her way through the traffic into the newsroom. <laughs> so here we are, day 25 of the campaign. Voting at advanced polls is already underway across Alberta. So I think we should take a moment on this day 25 to go back, reflect briefly with a brief history lesson. What was the makeup of the legislature when Jim Prentice dropped the writ? And what was the prevailing wisdom at the start of the campaign about how this early election would play out? There were 70 PCs. Actually, there was 72. But two of them actually were vacant. Both Doug Griffiths and Doug Horner had resigned. So there were 70 two PCs, two were vacant, and then five uh, ND, sorry, five liberals, five wild rows, four NDP. And an independent. Independent. One yes. independent, that's right. Joe Anglin. Um, and the prevailing wisdom at the time was the wild rose was eviscerated. They were done because of the mass floor crossings last, uh, last December. Uh, the NDP was doing okay in Edmonton, might get a few more seats in Edmonton, but basically it was going to be another cakewalk for the progressive conservatives because they had called, he had called, Prentice had called the election really a year early. Wadros had no leader. And so the sense was that going into the election uh, that um, it's going to be another just sort of sleepwalk cakewalk for the PCs. Yeah, and I think at one point I called this a, a Seinfeld election at one point. I definitely called nothing. it. I called it boring. I think <laughs> on one of the podcasts that we recorded early on in the campaign, um, it's certainly not boring now, um, and we've seen quite a turn. And I'm, I was I was thinking about it yesterday. I was trying to think about what really marked the major shift. And it seems to me it was very incremental, actually, until we all sort of were forced to see it in front of us during the debate. That, I think, is when we realized there really had been a real shift in the sort of, uh, in the nature of the campaign. Mm -hmm. And and that's when we saw Prentice go after Rachel Notley, the NDP leader. We saw saw the polls at the very beginning showing a three-way race, NDP doing really well. People were grumpy at the budget. We were thinking those polls are kind of questionable, but people were grumpy at the budget, but Miriam was right. To actually see the PCs react the way they did, to see Prentice react the way he did during that debate made us think, oh, these polls are actually accurate. In fact, at that point, he had seen obviously the polls internally showing the NDP was the one big threat, as opposed to being a three-way race, it's really a two-way race, so he kept during that debate, Prentice kept going after Notley, and we're seeing the polls now showing the NDP, according to, I think, all the polls in the last few days, are in front. Yeah. Crazy numbers. Well, uh, but five came out yesterday, and they all seem to say really the same thing, that the NDP is is leading, has a commanding lead, in fact, and, and is uh, um, really far and ahead in Edmonton. Um, and it's interesting what you were saying about about the debate and and finally realizing that the N- that the NDP was who the PCs were looking at as a threat. You know, obviously politicians are all, always tell us that they don't care about the polls, <clears throat> and we all have heard that old cliche that the only poll that matters is the one on election day. Absolutely. Um, but last week I was speaking to a political analyst from Calgary, and he said, you know, they'll say that, but what we really need to do is look at how they're behaving, right. and how they're behaving is as if the wild rose is not even on the radar 
while the NDP is the big boogeyman. And of course, now we've seen a real shift in the tone of the PC campaign to um, painting the NDP as, uh, you know, a party that is going to take Alberta down <laughs> into the dark ages, really. I mean, the, the, I the campaign that we've seen has, has really shifted. It makes me feel like they might as well just say, we'll be back in the 1980s. Yeah. Like, that's what it feels <laughs> like they're, they're warning us about. Well, no, they're talking about, you know, old NDP governments across the country. The ads now are talking about the NDP being a threat. Um, it, it's funny in the sense that I've talked to Jim Prentice over the last few days, and it doesn't matter the topic you bring up. You could even mention <laughs> Brian Jean and the Wild Rose, and Prentice will bring it back to the NDP. It's all about the NDP, the advertising, his speech last night to the uh, PC leaders' dinner um, was all about the NDP, and he brought up Thomas Mulcair's name, you know, on the pipeline issue. These guys are going to kill the pipelines. Um, So it's interesting to see. I got to say, though, being in that room, 1,600 seats in that room for dinner, $500 a plate. This is a PC leaders' dinner. That's $800,000, now minus the cost of the meal. But you can still see they can call out a crowd. You know, the PCs may be down in the polls, but it comes to getting people into those rooms. They can make a lot of money, a lot of people into those rooms to listen to Jim Prentice still. The problem is a lot of people are pointing out that, um, you know, it's one thing to maintain a base, um, but it's another thing to sort of uh, attract different kinds of voters, you know, for what we saw in 2012, for example, where we saw Alison Redford successfully sort of woo over the more progressive voters in the province. You know, I don't know that that's going to be able to happen this time around. Yeah, I don't know. And uh, Paula's just come in and joined no, no, us. I've been here all along. <laughs> just like just like Gordon Dirks always supported GSAs, I have always been in the studio. I like how even Paula can make a, a slightly delayed entry of, with a political <laughs> connection. Thank you, Paula. We were just talking about the polls and what the polls are showing. And I just wanted to ask, do you think the progressive conservatives had NDP attack ads ready to go prior to this election? (laughs) No, (laughs) No, I don't think so. No, because we didn't know, you know, obviously it it was only about a week and a half, like last weekend that we really begin to see the the attacks on the NDP sort of center around their jobs policy and their pipelines policy and their energy policy and that sort of thing. You know, it was interesting because the NDP quickly responded with a very jobs-focused sort of campaign. On their end, they shifted as well. And so they began to put more emphasis on, on their plan to create jobs and defending their position on pipelines and and defending their position on, you know, more upgrading here in Alberta and that sort of thing. Um, Because it very quickly became, um, you know, the the PC attacks very quickly became focused on the economy and how the NDP is going to ruin it. And I think perhaps if the progressive conservatives had thought a little longer and harder about their attack ads, they might not have started them with saying, an NDP government is closer than you would than you would ever think. Can you think? Yeah, I thought that well, was wh- funny. What's, what's the line? An NDP government. An NDP government in Alberta is closer than you think, which I thought was really interesting it's because like, it really that that's what you want to say. We're losing, so vote for us. Yeah, well, not, that kind of kind of worked for them in 2012, didn't it? <laughs> I actually heard an interview with Brian Jean this morning, and he basically said the same thing. And he's what he's saying is, you know. The NDP, if we're not careful, are going to get a majority. They're winning. They're leading in this race. Help me. Vote for me in Calgary, and I'll keep them to a minority. I mean, it's it's fascinating to see both parties on the right, A, taking the NDP as such a credible threat, but B, 
admitting that very publicly and 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 and, and in a very forthright way saying you know yeah oh absolutely they're surging they're leading and i don't i you know I, there's different opinions about what the strategy is behind that you know which we can maybe talk about but i just think you know as a political reporter in alberta it's really fascinating to see that dynamic it is i mean to see the national last night they're at issue panel talking about could there be an ndp government yeah. in alberta and they're so, they're also perplexed by it well it's <laughs> is playing the fear card we saw it last time in 2012 and it's it can be very effective you tell people look fine you like the ndp but you go there if you actually elect them in they may actually form a majority government then where will we be and it's, the idea is to make people think twice and and and, and the thing is and these fear campaigns actually can be very effective yeah, the, the question is, though, where is the NDP vote? The NDP vote is concentrated in Edmonton. I think it's going to hold solid. The problem is, and we've discussed this before, it doesn't matter if they get 60% voter support in Edmonton. That doesn't help them win seats in rural Alberta. I mean, ironically, the NDP's best and only hope to form a minority government is for the Wild Rose to do remarkably well in southern Alberta. That you know, that's that's the only way this breaks. Well, actually, for in, them. Calgary, if, yeah, if, and in Calgary, and, and if vote the, splitting in yes, Calgary. So if yes. we start seeing the Wild Rose doing well in Calgary, splitting the Conservative vote, all of a sudden the NDP starts winning seats that they had no business winning just a few weeks ago because of the the, the math. And right. we know math is difficult, <laughs> but the math can <laughs> be shown. Well, the math can be shown to show the NDP actually doing really well if there's vote splitting in, in key areas in Calgary and in rural Alberta. Yeah, and, and our poll numbers, which the Journal and the Herald is reporting this morning, Friday morning, that show that the number one issue for Albertans is trust and accountability is very bad news for the Tories. If the number one issue were the economy, it would be different. But if the number one issue is you don't like the way Jim Prentice and Alison Redford and Dave Hancock and Ed Stomach ran Tory governments, uh, then I mean, if that is really what's motivating you to get to the polls, that is bad news for Prentice. The other bad news for Prentice, I think, in a weird way, is the fact that, you know, the other numbers I heard on the CBC this morning is that voter engagement is much, much higher in Edmonton than it is in Calgary. So if voters just don't come out in Calgary for the Tories, and the only people who get to the polls are people who are really motivated to want change. If everybody else is home, you know, sleeping off their red mile hangover, um, I don't know what that means. Yeah, well, let, I just want to review quickly the arcs of the different campaigns and how we got here. So for the Progressive Conservatives and Jim Prentice, what do you think have been the highs and lows of the campaign for him? And he's the one who triggered the election. How on earth did we get here? He, he picked the date, for heaven's sakes. Well, he picked the topic. He thought it'd be the economy and the budget. The thing is that there was a poll, you mentioned the CBC poll, Paul. I think that their poll shows the economy is the number one issue. So the polls are differing uh, on what the issues are. But he's been hammering away at the budget, the economy. It's all about, um, you know, steady growth in the economy later on. It'll be tough this year, but don't worry, things will get better. So he's trying to make it all about the economy. But, of course, people are upset with this budget for many different reasons. One issue, of course, is the corporate tax. There was no increase in the corporate tax rate. A lot of people are upset about that here and in Calgary, according to our poll again. Even people in Calgary thought the government should have, the PC should have raised the uh, the corporate tax rate. So there's that issue where it didn't go the way I think he thought it would go. He was thinking in terms of a moderate down the middle of the road. You know, you got the NDP on one side, the extremists on both sides, and I'm in the middle. I'm moderate. You'll like me. It's turned into a gauntlet. He's been hammered by both sides. And then you go into the the debate where you know he 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 did okay, 
but he focused all the attention on, on the uh, Rachel Notley, the NDP leader, and she shone. Like she did really, really well. Uh, so I think this is a campaign that didn't go the way the PCs had intended. Um, and I think that this is why they're in they're boxed into a corner right now in terms of what what they can actually do, and that is basically attack the NDP with a club for the next four days. There have been a lot of political minefields for the progressive conservatives in particular. It seems like the last week, a lot of issues that aren't related to issues on the campaign trail, but issues about their candidates. Um, this particularly in, in southern Alberta in the Calgary ridings. How has he handled them? Well, he, it's been interesting. I think he's been trying to downplay them, obviously, for quite a number of weeks because a lot of, uh, you know, the Jonathan Dennis issue aside, um, you know, that's sort of a, a personal legal issue that's going on with him. But the the candidates and the nomination, the questionable nomination processes, um, he's been trying to downplay those for weeks, but unfortunately they continue to pop up. Um, you know, the one case in particular, Jamie Lal in Chestermere, was a nominated candidate, wanted to run for the nomination against Bruce McAllister, who we all know was a former Wild Rose MLA who crossed the floor. And then Jamie Law was disqualified, and that really raised a lot of questions for people about the motivation behind that. Now we've now we've learned that it's a, um, that the justification for it is a uh, restraining order that was served um, on him by a former uh, girlfriend when he was 19 years old. And then that only just raised more questions because people said, well, look, if, if Jamie Law can't be a candidate because of a, you know, a years old restraining order, how do you justify allowing Mike Allen, who was actually <laughs> convicted of a crime of soliciting two prostitutes who happened to be, who ended up being undercover police officer while he was on government business just a few years ago? For a lot of people, those two cases are hard to reconcile because if in one case a restraining order is enough, it follows that a, an actual criminal conviction would also be enough. And so then that leads to more questions about, again, the motivations behind it. And it speaks to that question of trust and accountability, of arrogance, of people believing that there was corruption within the PC party. And none of these stories have helped to to quell any of those, those fears. Do you think those issues make a difference among people who aren't already extremely partisan? Because I know those get a lot of attention on Twitter and social media, but do you think in the general public those issues have an impact on how people vote? I think they wouldn't if they didn't already fit into a pre-existing narrative. And I think that, you know, the very sad Jonathan Dennis case is a good example of this. I mean, Dennis and his wife are going through an extremely nasty separation. We don't know all of the issues because first they closed the court, which is very unusual, and then when uh, Mrs. Dennis uh, wanted the court open. Then there's a publication ban, which the Herald and the CBC in Calgary have challenged. Um, and normally, a, a cabinet minister's divorce wouldn't be any of our business. But because of the aura of secrecy around it, and because Dennis had been the justice minister, and because he was asked to resign as justice minister, it, it may not make, it, it shouldn't make any difference. But it fits into the pre-existing narrative of these guys are trying to cover stuff up. These guys are doing stuff behind closed doors. And I feel very badly for the Dennises who, you know, whose, whose divorce is their own personal private business. But it's become a political issue because of, of the moment in, in which it's happening. Mm -hmm. And because there's so much secrecy around yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. Whenever there's a void, people fill it with conjecture. And, and in this case, there's a publication ban and it, people don't know what's going on. And that mm -hmm. doesn't help the case. That aside, we've seen, of course, other nomination processes that you've talked about where in Edmonton we've got two lawsuits up here 
we have one minister, uh, former minister, uh, Bardwash in Edmonton, Ellesley, who had to step down. He's actually left the campaign uh, because of a lawsuit, and he's suing someone who's accused him of uh, trying to bribe somebody during the nomination process. We have Don Martin, another uh, failed PC candidate, suing the PCs for $124,000. I think that maybe these things don't influence people uh, by themselves. They may, though, be a, a symptom of a problem within the PC party. There's cracks developing in that party, 44 years. People are, are in fighting. We're starting to see that dirty laundry being aired now in public. And Prentice was the most recent leader to meet with the Journal's editorial board. That was Thursday, yesterday. Miriam and Graham, you were there. Did he seem like a man worried about someone who might be on the verge of delivering anything less than a PC majority? He certainly wouldn't entertain any questions about anything other than a PC majority, right? I mean, we we tried asking him a few different ways about, you know, whether he was prepared to cooperate with his uh, counterparts in the event that the legislature is led by a minority government. Uh, he refused really to answer the question. Essentially, what he said was he wasn't going to prejudge the outcome, that Albertans will vote on Tuesday and he will trust their judgment. Um, but we tried to ask a few different ways because obviously we've heard from Brian Jean and from Rachel Notley and from David Swan that they'd all be willing to sort of work to try to make the legislature function. Obviously, each sort of leader has their 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 line in the sand, as um, one editor put it here. So so in that sense, it was very interesting because he doesn't he didn't want to personally uh, entertain that notion. Well, but uh, there's there's no upside for him. Like he can't talk about losing. He can't say you know something. We really are thinking we're going to lose. Even though the ads are talking about the NDP uh, government being closer than you think, he really cannot overtly say, yeah, we're in such trouble right now. He has to maintain, even if he doesn't believe it, this facade that they're going to actually win and win big on Tuesday. And, of course, we're still thinking we're thinking, you know, maybe the numbers don't add up for the NDP to form a government. The PCs are still a very strong party. They've got a lot of people out there, a lot of money. So, but also, he has to project an image of confidence. Mm-hmm. As he's a politician heading into an election. Yeah. Okay. Let's turn to Rachel Notley, a politician heading into. She's she's dealing with. I don't think something that, as we talked about, any of us expected at the beginning of the campaign. We talked about highs and lows for the PCs. What have been the highs and lows for the NDP in this campaign? You know, one thing that sticks out for me. Obviously, we all have heard that the debate was, you know, a great turning point. Yeah, we that Rachel Notley had a whole podcast excellent on it last time <laughs> during 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 the, um, that debate. Um, what sticks out for me, I think was a rally that they held in Edmonton, um, maybe about a week and a half. It, it was, was a Sunday. Is that the one? The it, was, you know what? it was It was the it first, was first weekend. Sunday. It was the first the weekend was of the campaign. That's yeah. right. Um, and it was at the Citadel. And it was packed. Like, I mean, there were hundreds of people there. So many, in fact, that the, the room had reached capacity and there was sort of overflow viewing of her speech. And it was very energetic crowd and really electric and... And you got a sense that there was a real energy behind the party. And and I've sort of seen that momentum carry carry on. I don't know if anyone in the NDP expected the uh, sort of amount of popularity that they've amassed so far, especially in, in, in places like Calgary. But it certainly they, they certainly peaked early and I don't I don't think they've really come too too yeah, far has, down from has that. any of the shine worn off well, since that debate I mean, in the past week certainly when rachel notley met with the calgary herald editorial board and said that you know she she didn't support the 
the uh, Northern, Northern Gateway. Gateway pipeline, there was huge blowback instantly sort of on social media. Um, and then, you know, the, the NDP worked very hard to contextualize those comments and to say, no, no, she's not opposed to Northern Gateway. She just doesn't think Northern Gateway is viable. And she's all in favor of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which goes to a different port. And she's in favor of, of the uh, the Atlantic Pipeline. Um, and she doesn't, you know, she's not opposed to Keystone. She just doesn't think fighting for Keystone in Washington is a good use of her time. But the narrative that came out of that, no matter how the NDP have tried to add nuance is that Rachel Notley doesn't like pipelines and that's certainly the ad that the uh, the ad line that the conservatives are going with I mean I don't know that you can call that a misstep because she's Rachel Notley she's a leader of New Democrats what is she going to come out and say she's all in favor of the Northern Gateway pipeline that could have come back to bite her in a different other way well certainly and we've heard her in the legislature saying things to the contrary not that long ago so it it definitely could come back so but you know is that a low point for her it was fine for the NDP to promise a $15 minimum wage when nobody thought they could win. Uh, if people actually start to think they can win, a $15 minimum wage is probably not a, a sustainable thing. You know, everybody was in favor of a 2% corporate tax increase when it was a hypothetical. Uh, I mean, the, the problem the NDP have is the closer and closer they get to the event horizon. Um, I've talked to lots of people who, who, you know, were very excited about the idea of a really, really strong NDP opposition who are a little more wary about the prospect of an NDP government. And inertia in Alberta politics is Rachel Notley's greatest enemy and Jim Prentice's greatest asset. Hmm. And what do you think about the amount of time she spent in southern Alberta? I thought as the assignment editor, I would be constantly dispatching reporters to cover Rachel Notley events. And she has not been here nearly as much as I thought she would in the Edmonton area. What well, it's part of her campaign to, to be the premier, to form government. And you're right. At first I thought, wow, she's getting spread too thin. I've talked to the other parties who thought, yeah, she's getting herself spread too thin. But if the numbers are right in Edmonton, it's insane. One poll today had the NDP at 73% in <laughs> Edmonton. <laughs> like, that that seems ridiculous. Anyway, An outlier all the other polls are showing them doing exceptionally well in Edmonton. In other words, this is home, home ground. She's doing really well here. She can afford to go out there. Also, I think by running a campaign from the very beginning saying she could form government and become the premier, it does tend then to elevate the profile of the NDP. They were the only ones besides the PCs aiming for a majority government uh, or being premier. Uh, even Brian Jean at the beginning of the Wild Rose said the best they could do is form the official opposition. He's since changed his tune. He's aiming to be premier. But the first out the gate in terms of the opposition parties was Notley. And that does help to give them a profile they didn't have before. You mentioned Brian Jean, so let's go right there. Just five months ago, the Wild Rose, honestly, they seemed doomed for extinction, right? We all thought so. They didn't have a leader even just two months ago, a, a f- official leader. What do you think about how Jean and his party have performed in this campaign? Well, I think that it was interesting. There's a momentum there. As one of the uh, Wild Rose officials told me that they're a movement, like they weren't based, even though Danielle Smith, you know, helped to raise them to the official opposition status after she left and stabbed them in the back, the movement was still there. And that's been a momentum. That's not Brian Jean. That was there before Brian Jean came along. And it's there after he became leader. It's helped him along. But it's interesting. It seems that the Wild Rose momentum has kind of stalled. Um, you know, they were in a three-way race, but they seem to be falling further and further back. Brian Jean, of course, he's um, he's brand new to provincial politics. He's a federal member of parliament for, for a decade up in Fort McMurray. He's only been Wild Rose leader for just over a month now. His son died uh, in March. It was very tragic, and he still went into the campaign. So this is the man with a huge emotional burden to carry. 
but we saw him um, in the debate being very stiff and wooden, and he just maintained that mantra of, I'm the only leader of a party that won't raise your taxes. And uh, that came very stiff and wooden, and they're saying, look, he just did what he had to do. Uh, he got a message out, and people know that, but it seems to be a very limited message because it seems that most Albertans are thinking, fine, if you want to raise my taxes, fine, but raise the corporate taxes as well. And so that no no higher taxes uh, mantra from the Wild Rose has a limited appeal, I think. But I think he has done a, you know, it's interesting, he came into our editorial board uh, and basically confessed to us that his advisors had told him that most people only watch the debate for six minutes, and so he had to say his line about taxes every six minutes to be heard. Since then, I think he's been trying furiously to soften his image. Graham even wrote a column in which he said he is not a robot. And he's uh, not a robot. It's true. <laughs> you know, so there would be pictures of Brian Jean, you know, taking his jet boat up the Clearwater River without a life jacket. Pictures of Brian Jean well, met- strangely dressed like <laughs> Austin Powers from the... from. Did you not see? You're all looking I, at me. Have I, you not seen the pictures okay, of Brian Jean? Now, I think, we're, now I think we're going to the regions of Paula's imagination. Well, no, 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 no it's true. It was actually it was an event in Fort McMurray. It was uh, We Love the Oil Sands. Yeah. And it was a, a fancy dress or a, a costume party to go there and talk for a minute about what they love about the, they love the oil sands. So it's people from all walks of life in Fort McMurray talking about the oil sands and how they love it at a party last weekend, and they were dressed up as various characters. That's fantastic. Yeah, so, I think I'm going to have some Googling to do. Yeah, so yeah. He, so he's, been, he's been working hard to soften and humanize his image. And he met with Nahed Nenshi, mayor of Calgary, mm, yesterday. And, 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 and tweeted those pictures all over the place. I and mean, I th- Nahed Nenshi said he was not robotic. Yeah, so I mean, I think, <laughs> I, I think Brian Jean is, you know, I mean, he's not the person we saw in the TV debate, but those are the clips that are going to stay in Absolutely. people's minds. And I think... I think he, I mean, he came into the journal editorial board, and in some ways it was hard to tell him apart from Rachel Notley, uh, because he was talking about, you know, we need to have more funding for LRT, and we need to have more bike paths, and we need to phase out coal-fired power plants. And, you know, he's working very, very hard to soften that image. He needed another four weeks, I think. Yeah, what what happens to that party if, for some reason, Brian Jean does not win his seat in uh, up in Fort McMurray? I mean, he's in a tough race against Don Scott, who's in a ca- who's a cabinet minister. Yeah, that's a problem, of course. And another leadership, you know, it depends how they do in the election as mm-hmm. well. What what kind of prize the uh, Wild Rose leadership is? I get the impression though that he's doing quite well in Fort McMurray. Um, name recognition is up there, of course. When he ran federally, he got like seventy percent of the vote federally. Mm-hmm. So he's a base of support in. Uh, Fort McMurray. Yeah. Uh, so I, th- I think right now he will win that riding because um, Scott is not a particularly strong candidate. You know, he's a minister, cabinet yeah. minister, absolutely. But I think that Gene has enough name recognition and enough anger right now at the government that people may be voting just against the PCs. In that case, in Fort McMurray, then your your answer then is Brian Jean. Yeah, well, uh, I'm definitely going to be watching that race on the. Uh, we well, all and that riding traditionally has a really low voter turnout, yes, the, the lowest, lowest in, in the province. province. So, <laughs> oh. um, you Come know what that Fort means McMurray. for the incumbent. <laughs> is, uh, but you know, but I think Graham's point is the right one for this whole election. It's not that people want to vote for the Wild Rose. It's not even that they want to vote for the New Democrats. They are angry at the Conservatives. I was moderating a forum this week uh, where Sarah Hoffman was speaking in Edmonton, Glenora. It was an all candidates event and she ended her presentation by saying to people lend me your vote the implication being you don't have to be a new democrat you just have to be angry enough at the conservatives you know and it was a direct appeal to liberal and wild rose supporters to give her their support at least in this election and and i think that's a message that's going to resonate in whichever ridings where the wild rose or the new democrat are the stronger i think 
I think strangely you're going to see strategic swing voting. I've talked to Wild Rose supporters who tell me that they're voting New Democrat in this election not because they're not because they're enamored of Rachel Notley's platform, but because that's the best way to express their anger. We've got the Liberals also looking for oh, yeah. people's votes. <laughs> oh yeah, David right. Swan is leading the party them. as an interim leader. Um, yeah. They've been campaigning on a shoestring budget. How yeah. do you think they've done with the resources that they have? And do you think they'll have? I well, mean, I, I think that the debate more or less summed it all up. Okay. Right. You know that David Swan, and we all like him, he's a very decent man, very well-meaning. He's and smart. Yeah, he's, he's a very smart, smart guy. absolutely. But to me, he is the embodiment of the liberals right now. Well-meaning, they're nice, but they're irrelevant. And in that debate, he was there, you know, trying to put, putting his hand up to try and get into the debate. He dropped his notes at one point yes, on the yeah, floor. Yeah. We all felt when we feel bad for Swan that they may be facing extinction. On Tuesday. Hmm, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking they might get three seats. Well, mm-hmm. at the very most, you're seeing some of the web pages um, yeah. saying three that the outside. Um, I'm thinking Lori uh, Blakeman has the best chance of surviving in this. Edmonton Center. Yeah. Yes, the long-standing candidate there. Okay. Well, and it would be a mistake not to mention the Alberta Party because those darn polls that we keep talking about show that a Greg Clark could be a serious challenge to Prentice's hand-picked Education Minister mm-hmm. Gordon Dirks. Do you think we'll actually see a legislature? formed on Wednesday that has an Alberta Party MLA in it. You know, it's a shame because they have some good candidates. As I say, having been Mm -hmm. out to the All Candidates Forum, there's some people that in another year would have won votes, but progressives, I think, are going to coalesce around the NDP because they have the momentum. Could Greg Clark win that seat in Calgary? Dirks I mean, I made a joke when I came in late uh, based on the fact that Dirks was online yesterday claiming on Twitter that he'd always supported uh, gay-straight alliances in schools which is a surreal thing to claim. Yes, but, uh, but so, answering the question, does the Alberta question? Party have a... <laughs> yes, I think, I, think it is, I think it is just possible that Greg Clark could win that riding. It's not probable, but nothing in this election well, is not probable. I think you're right, Paula. If we see this election being an ABC, anybody but conservatives, and it's a backlash against the PCs, then we may see people like Greg Clark winning. Okay. And that's when we may see starts to see a minority government for the, the, the uh, NDP... If the numbers go kind of screwy, it turns into an anti-Prentice vote on uh, Tuesday. So the scariest question of all, or at that time, I think I have to ask it, predictions. What do you think we will see election night? Majority? Minority? Who will hold the power? Are any of us brave enough to even hazard a guess? I'm terrified. I usually want to answer the question. I don't even know if I want to answer my own question. This is the first (coughs) election I've covered in Alberta, and it's also the most interesting in recent history. (laughs) So I am going to be quiet on this question (laughs) because there is no way any prediction I make is going to be anything close to reality. Yeah. You got the by-elections right, Graham. Yeah, yeah, yay for me. (sighs) Um, Yeah, I got a quick ball in my head. You know, and I think I don't want to tell people how to vote. I don't want to say to them, you look, you know, we're talking about the NDP forming government, so you're all wrong, you're all stupid, it's not going to happen. I don't want to do that because very often in Alberta, we end up being the pundits predicting yet another majority PC government, which a monkey could predict. Yeah. Um, having said that, um, I, you know, I'm thinking right now we it's going to be a PC minority or a a small majority at this point. Yeah, I think super, I, I can still, super slim, like a sliver. Because I, I talk to the PCs, and this is not people who are trying to, well, they're trying to spin me in a sense. They desperately don't want their party to lose, but they're people who have told me in the past how much trouble they've been in with all kinds of, of shenanigans behind closed doors. They're thinking that they can still pull it out, that um, they still have enough of a campaign. People will f- believe these ads and go back. 
they'll be frightened off the NDP like they were frightened off the wild rose last time. There's still that sense by the, the PCs that they can still pull this out. Yeah. You know, Paula never likes to make predictions. I'm, no, I'm not going to make a prediction. I'm going to say that our poll numbers this week showed that 50% of people who voted PC in the last election are not going to vote PC in this election. But as I said, it's one thing to think that you're going to vote for a really strong opposition and another thing to get cold feet about the prospect of an actual NDP government. I think this is the absolute Schrodinger's cat election. I think until we open the ballot boxes on Tuesday, we will not know uh, whether the cat is alive or dead. And I think that most people in Alberta won't know how they're going to vote until they vote. There are a lot of undecided still, and that could make a huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah, what's going to happen in the past, you know, uh, with Klein and his leadership review in 2006, they didn't know what was going to happen until they went into that, that voting booth and they voted against him, basically. But even then, he got 55%. <laughs> I know. Well, and I started to try to, I wanted to come into this podcast and make a prediction and have a number of seats so that I could just look so smart if I was right on uh, election night. But I started to go through the writings Dunvegan piece, Hector Goudreau's riding. I don't know how that's going to go. They have two people who have who have not run before. Are they going to elect a conservative? Or are they going to elect a Wild Rose MLA? Might they even vote NDP? I don't know. Like I could not make a call on that riding, so I just don't I'm know. I'm hoping this uncertainty will drive people to the polls to actually vote. My fear still is apathy. Low voter turnout. Low yeah. voter turnout, which tends to play in favor of the incumbents. In this case, it's the PCs. Now, for those of you not slavishly reading the Alberta Vote feed on Twitter, let us conclude with good stuff from the gallery, our weekly segment where we share something we've enjoyed reading, watching, or listening to, often but not always with a political connection. Miriam, could you please start us off? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to recommend the ad issue panel um, uh, that was on uh, CBC's The National last night. Thursday night, yes. Uh, yes, that's right. They had a couple, they had obviously the regulars, um, but they also had a, uh, an executive producer from CBC Calgary on. It was an interesting and quite a long discussion, actually, about, about just the Alberta election and how folks in, uh, you know, the rest of the country are sort of standing with their mouths open wondering... What's going What's on? What's going to happen? Yeah. Okay, well, we will put the link up to that. I'm going to recommend a list which actually contains a lot of really good journalism in it. Uh, yesterday, the Canadian Association of Journalists put out their list of uh, finalists in a whole host of categories. Those include Edmonton Journal's Keith Durine for his Condition yeah. Critical series about awesome. Alberta hospitals. Larry Wong, journal photographer for a, a, a dossier of uh, photographs that he submitted. And it also included some of our colleagues at CBC, Chuck Resnell and Jenny Russell, about uh, their Aura of Power broadcast. There's a long list of really good, important journalism from papers and broadcast networks across the country. So I'm going to put up a link to all that list and you can click through it and spend the whole weekend reading awesome journalism. Um, I'll just plug quickly our platform tracker on our webpage. You can go to our webpage, the Edmonton Journal webpage, and any issues for any party, you can click on it. You can see the highlights of uh, various parties and their, their uh, platforms on various issues. Absolutely. Make sure, though, I'm going to put up a link because if you Google it, we've noticed a lot of people are going to our 2012 platform tracker. So make sure you're going to the 2015 platform tracker. Paula, wrap us up. I just want to put in an additional plug for Keith Gerine's uh, series, Condition Critical. When it came out in December, uh, it got sort of lost because that was the same week that Danielle Smith crossed the floor and brought the Wild Rose Caucus into the Tory fold. 
It was an extraordinary piece of journalism that Keith Gerine did. He spent months looking at the uh, infrastructure needs of Alberta's hospitals, looking at the politicization of repairs. I can't stress warmly enough that you should read the series if you didn't read it the first time just before you go to vote. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thank you, Graham Paula and Miriam, for this final podcast before the election. We've got Ryan Jackson in here standing in and capturing a video which we'll post on the journal's website. And if you want to connect, we're on Facebook via the Edmonton Journal, and we're all on Twitter. You can hear previous episodes on edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or through the journal's SoundCloud feed. We're also on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and you can subscribe in the press gallery. We'll be there for you every day by Saturday morning. Now, we may have a special post-election podcast next week after the vote. We still have to iron out those details, so keep your eye on Twitter and Facebook or just check your podcast queue on Wednesday. And you can see if we've managed to squeeze in an extra recording session. But no matter what, we'll be back within a week in the press gallery. <laughs>